You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. We can. We. I think we can begin. I would like to uh, uh, welcome you all to this talk by Marius Lorinovicius of, of the Central Euro- uh, of Center for European Policy Analysis. Uh, he will be introduced by our Lithuanian lecturer Ausra Valanchowski, and I will just mention a little bit about uh, about Baltic studies here at this university. Uh, we are one of two universities to teach the Lithuanian language in a joint project between University of Washington and Vilnius University. Uh, and that is what, ha- what has given this the good, us the good luck of, of bringing Ausra Valanchowski in here, and she will speak in a moment. I want to just mention one more thing, that Maris Lauranovicius is giving two talks, one today, right now, and I hope you've heard about this talk here today, you're here. That was a joke, sorry. <laughs> and then at 7 o'clock tonight at the Center for Humanities, he will again speak about Russia and the world, a view from Lithuania. I have flyers about this evening's lecture if you'd like to pick, up, pick one up after, you're, um, uh, after we leave. Uh, so I will now introduce Ausra Valanchowski, a uh, lecturer from Vilnius University, teaching Lithuanian language and culture here at the University of Washington. Thank you, Guntis, and I'm very happy to see you here, and I'm very happy having the chance to introduce our guest speaker, Marius Lorenavicius, and also my uh, fellow countrymen. <laughs> we both are from Lithuania. So a few words about Marius Lorenavicius. Lorenavicius is a Baltic American Freedom Foundation security research scholar currently in residence at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Lorinovicius is considered to be one of the leading experts in, on Russia in Lithuania and has received several awards for his contributions to Lithuanian foreign policy. At CEPA, he is contributing to the Baltic Sea Security Initiative and Information War Program. Before assuming his fellowship, he was a senior analyst for the Vilnius-based Eastern European Studies Center, as well as the foreign editor and deputy editor-in-chief for the biggest Lithuanian daily that was Ritas. Lorinovicius holds a master's degree from the Institute of uh, International Relations uh, and Political Science of Vilnius University in Lithuania. And before Lorinovicius talk, I would like to thank Ellison Center, and the Department of Scandinavian Studies and Professor Gunti Schmidhens and personally Rana Blakis for helping to organize this event. And Maris Lorinovic's talk uh, was called Lithuania, Poland, Russia and International Security, but we can see that he has changed a bit his, and he will explain why, because he has uh, reasons for that. So please join me in welcoming Maris Lorinovic's. Thank you, Usha. Thank you for this uh, kind of introduction. Uh, thank you for hosting me here. And thank you all for coming and uh, be interested in, in, in my expertise, in my view on uh, this very important, I, I would uh, emphasize this very important issue, because I really think that the situation in the Baltic states uh, uh, is really dangerous not only for these Baltic states themselves, 
but for the uh, our Western world as well. And I will try to explain why. Uh, that is why I've changed uh, the title of my presentation a bit. Uh, I will speak about Poland at the very end, but uh, when speaking about uh, Baltic states and Russia, it's uh, we should speak. Uh, there is no other topic to speak uh, right now, just about the threat. Uh, Russia poses to the Baltic states because uh, threat is re uh, very real and uh, uh, it's uh, becoming uh, more and more dangerous. Uh, it's not like uh, this, the threat is, is the same like uh, like like at least the se uh, a year ago. It's becoming becoming more dangerous, and I will try to explain why uh, during my presentation as well. So uh, the threat to the Baltic states. Uh, we have uh, two concepts uh, which are somehow related to the history and we really like uh, to these historical parallels when we speak about this uh, situation in uh, the modern world. Uh, so it's a uh, Swalky Gap, uh, like it was uh, the Fulton Gap uh, before the uh, Second World War, and Sudeten Russian card, uh, like it was uh, Sudeten German card, again, uh, just before the Second World War. These are terms invented not by me. These are terms uh, uh, which are very frequently used uh, by many analysts uh, in the West uh, right now. Um, I think that it's really uh, important to have this um, <coughs> look back to the history and, and uh, having in mind everything has happened in the history. Uh, but uh, one thing which is really um, important uh, to remember is that it's our thinking. And when I think, uh, when I speak about Russia, I always encourage people to think not in our terms, not in our Western terms but to speak in that. And I'm not very sure that they think and speak in these uh, historical parallels. So I will use these uh, Western concepts and will try to speak about um, the real danger to the Baltic states. So the newest concept of the threat, so-called Suwalki Gap. I'm not very sure why it's called Suwalki Gap because it's about, not about Poland, it's about Lithuania. Uh, and Suwalki is a region, uh, one part of, of, of uh, Poland, but it's still, uh, many, many people says that even uh, highest ranking NATO officials, military officials are um, just... Uh, uh, keep uh, awakened uh, at night just because of this so-called Suwalki Gap. So what is Suwalki Gap? It, it's a, a, well, generally speaking, it's a corridor to Kaliningrad uh, from Belarus, and it's uh, one of uh, the main uh, targets of Russia, of a potential Russia, uh, Russian attack against the Baltic states. Uh, my topic, when I started uh, to write and uh, speak about uh, the threat to Baltic states, and it was back in the year of, uh, in the autumn of uh, 2014, uh, right after the war in 
Ukraine started. At that time, even in uh, Lithuania, when I wrote the first article on that, and I argued that uh, Lithuania and Baltic states are facing the threat of conventional uh, attack rather than a hybrid one, um, I was called uh, kind of, um, well, even a paranoid uh, about that at that time. Uh, it was not the first time when uh, not only me, but people in uh, the Baltic states are called paranoid because of their threat perception of Russia. Uh, so at that time, it was it, it's, uh, it sounded uh, quite strange to speak about this uh, conventional, the threat of conventional attack against uh, the Baltic states. But uh, now we have a situation when even even uh, highest-ranking NATO officials, military officials, are thinking and speaking about the, uh, the same threat. And to tell the truth, I am not very happy about that, and I will not uh, will be even less happy if my threat perception will come true uh, in, in, in uh, some, somewhere in the future. But the thing is that uh, Russia is, um, and I will come uh, to it later. But but I can say now that uh, the. Uh, internal public discussion, domestic public discussion in Russia has already shifted from if, uh, it was a year ago when uh, they started this discussion, if they need uh, a new occupation of Baltic states. Uh, it was the first article of Rostislav Ischenko exactly a year ago, uh, where he argued that uh, for uh, the Russian interests, uh, in uh, the new occupation of Baltic sta states is inevitable. So now this domestic discussion has shifted from if to when and w under what circumstances. And that uh, just uh, sh uh, can show what, uh, uh, how this danger involves and, and how it uh, becomes even more dangerous. But uh, the most uh, common uh, threat perception is uh, quite a different one. It's a hybrid war or so-called uh, little green man scenario in uh, the Baltic states. So uh, many, many uh, defense, uh, even not, not only the general press, but, but defense portals and uh, defense analysts are thinking about this scenario of little green men in the Baltic states. Uh, why we're thinking about little green men? Just because of the, our experience, our, our knowledge, our uh, understanding what has happened in Ukraine, in Crimea. But uh, my question would be, uh, what makes us think about Crimea first? Now we have uh, at least three wars uh, Russia waged against different countries since 2008. 2008, it was Georgian War, 2014, war in Ukraine, and 2015, war in Syria. When you look into all these uh, three wars, uh, one can see 
that these are completely different uh, techniques, completely different, different uh, warfare scenarios. Uh, so why we should look into uh, the scenario of uh, just of uh, Crimea instead of looking uh, into all the other possible scenarios and not only these three, there can be uh, some absolutely different scenarios because uh, Russia is uh, an opportunistic power and well, just now I would like to mention that um, when I when I'm talking about Russia, I always have in mind Putin's regime. I'm not talking about Russia as a country. I'm not to talking about Russians. Uh, uh, just because I myself, I, I really remember, uh, I know that Russia can be different. And I really personally remember the times when we were fighting for our independence in Lithuania. Uh, Russians were coming to defend our parliament uh, in 1991. Uh, I was toasting uh, for our and their uh, in, uh, independence and freedom uh, to Russians at that time. So I really know that it's not about Russia. It's about the Putin's regime. So uh, Putin's regime is a real opportunistic power, and they're taking opportunities. We provide them. Uh, so if they will be given some other opportunity, uh, any attack against Baltic uh, states is not inevitable. It's just a, a possible scenario, and uh, we should uh, assess our, our, threat, uh, our threats and, and prepare for that. But it's not about thinking in terms like it's uh, in an, anything happening in um, the Baltic states is inevitable. And uh, the, the same is about these scenarios. So uh, I don't uh, see any good reason to focus just on the one of the scenarios, which is the war in Ukraine. So what are the questions sh uh, which should be addressed when we speak up, uh, about Little Green Man scenario versus uh, conventional attack? The first one, what are differences or and similarities between Ukraine and the Baltic states? The second, what <coughs> Russia can and what it can't, uh, cannot achieve by hybrid warfare in the Baltic states. And the third one is what are Kremlin goals in the Baltic states? Uh, so now about uh, the differences and uh, more similarities between Ukraine and Baltic states. Uh, all of us know that Baltic <coughs> states are members of NATO, which makes their situation absolutely different. Uh, well, it's uh, well known about the Article 5. Well known that uh, behind Baltic states uh, is a real uh, overwhelming military power of NATO. But uh, again, as I said, I always uh, encourage people to think in their terms. So mentioning this article of uh, Rostislav Ischenko a year ago, uh, it was not single time he mentioned NATO or Article 5. It makes a, a situation different, but still they are not thinking always in, in terms of Article 5. 
what makes, and that's why I made it in red, what makes the situation absolutely different in the Baltic states, uh, how it differs from uh, the situation in Ukraine. Baltic states have no open border with Russia. Uh, we all know that uh, this kind of hybrid war uh, Russia brought to Ukraine, especially to Donbass, uh, situation in Crimea was a little different, but, but especially when we talk about the Donbass, uh, the uh, only reason why they were quite successful implementing this uh, scenario of little green men in Ukraine, in Donbass, was the open, open border with Russia. Because the supplement of uh, arms and uh, heavy weapons uh, to Ukraine was the uh, crucial thing to the success of this campaign. Without this uh, supply of heavy weaponry to, uh, to, to, to Donbass from Russia, they wouldn't succeed. Uh, the third thing is Baltic states could not be caught by surprise. While a hybrid war is nothing new for Baltic states, not to mention already well-researched Ukrainian example. Uh, thinking and speaking about that, I should mention that uh, when we speak about the hybrid warfare, especially in the West, uh, we, we speak about it like something new, something created by uh, Putin or, or Putin's regime. Um, I should say that even our occupation in 19, 1940s, it was a kind of hybrid warfare. And you would be surprised how many similarities you would find uh, just researching the example of the occupation of uh, three Baltic states in 1940s and the case in Ukraine. So we are well aware about this hybrid war techniques. We are uh, well aware about the example of uh, what they did in uh, Ukraine. So, uh, and we're ready to fight. The most important thing, we're ready to fight. We uh, have changed our laws. We uh, made uh, well. We, we are preparing for our, uh, our not our only our military forces, but we are preparing our police forces, our security forces for these kind of scenarios of, of any little green men in the Baltic states. So we will be not uh, caught by surprise, and we will shoot, as uh, our president said, not once. We will shoot. Um, it, it, it will not be the case of uh, Crimea when not a single shoot was shot. Uh, contrary to Ukraine, after Yanukovych rule, police and security forces are not in any disarray in Baltic states. Uh, the, one of the main problems uh, of Ukraine was that uh, country was uh, almost destroyed by Yanukovych regime especially speaking about uh, security forces, military forces, and it, it's not the case in the Baltic states. Baltic states are functioning market economies and democracies, and situation with even, even Russian-speaking population is different as well. Uh, even speaking about Narva, which uh, is Narva next, one of the most uh, well trendy topics in, in the West, even the, uh, speaking about Narva or Latgala in uh, Latvia, we don't have uh, 
any similar situation in Lithuania because Russian-speaking population in Lithuania is very small, just 5%. So even speaking about Narva or Latgala, the, different, uh, the situation is absolutely different from uh, Donbass or Crimea. These people, uh, I couldn't say that they are well integrated into the society, but I can say that the situation is absolutely different from Crimea or Donbass, even for them. It's highly unlikely that Russia can play internal power struggle card in Baltic states, at least to the same extent as it was in Ukraine. Uh, I don't know how many of you is aware about the very beginning of the situation in uh, Donbass. It's not the situation in Crimea, but when, it, when everything started in uh, Donbass, I can, tell, uh, I can tell you the story uh, I've got from our diplomats. Our diplomats approached uh, Ukrainian officials just saying, uh, why, not, uh, why aren't you doing anything about that when, when, when just, it just started? They said, you know, um, it's, uh, it's, it's very different from, from Crimea. It's, uh, it's about Akhmetov. There is a Ukrainian oligarch in Donbass, uh, Renat Akhmetov. It's about Akhmetov and his fight uh, for the influence after this revolution in Ukraine. So we will manage to negotiate uh, and solve the situation in um, two weeks or, or, or so. And that was a real story. Uh, the, uh, everything started in Donbass. Uh, just uh, at the very beginning, it was uh, people of Akhmetov trying to achieve their uh, goals, uh, getting back influence uh, they lost after the revolution, in, after the Maidan in, in, in Ukraine. But afterwards, uh, it was uh, people, uh, the so-called Girkin squad, uh, they came in, uh, uh, there was just... 60 people uh, who came in into Ukraine and started uh, uh, this military campaign. So uh, the, uh, Russia played this uh, internal power struggle card in, in Ukraine very successfully, but it's not the case in the Baltic states. So, and the only existing similarity is presence of Russian minority and Kremlin's willingness to defend uh, this minority anywhere in the world. Yes, it's, it's true, it's about uh, Russian minority, but we're used to it. Uh, it's nothing new to us. Uh, they are trying to defend uh, uh, by any means uh, Russian minorities in Estonia, Latvia, even Lithuania, and uh, they are using this information warfare and uh, uh, some kind of uh, hybrid warfare techniques uh, all the time since, uh, I would say, since 1993 or four, just before, long before Putin came to power in Russia. So we are used to it, we are uh, uh, really aware about the situation. What Russia can and what it can't, uh, ca cannot achieve by uh, hybrid warfare in the Baltic states. Uh, there we should speak about uh, uh, quite a famous case of so-called bronze soldier case in Estonia in 2007. 
at that time, it was a real hybrid attack of Russia against uh, Estonia. And uh, to tell more, it was uh, a cyber attack uh, against Estonia as well. So this uh, hybrid warfare uh, technique included a, a cyber attack at that time. So uh, Russia already uh, tried to uh, implement this uh, hybrid uh, warfare against Estonia in 2007, and uh, there are lessons learned by Russia as well, and these are following. Even considering that Estonia at that time, I was talking uh, quite a lot about this uh, fact of, of uh, that uh, Ukraine, Ukraine was caught by surprise, and we will be not. At that time, Estonia was caught by surprise. But uh, now we know that uh, it was just a situation when, uh, which had a very limited effect uh, in uh, a limited area. It was just Tallinn. And even having in mind that Russia can bring uh, some kind of little green men, uh, at that time it was not the case, but even adding a factor of little green men to the situation of 2007 and trying uh, to think what will happen, uh, I don't see any, any, uh, any situation when Russia can achieve something uh, more than disruption of normal life in a limited territory for a limited time. Uh, such an attack, when failed, only increases resilience of Baltic states. Uh, I can mention uh, Cyber Defense Center, which was uh, built in, in, in Tallinn, and closer look to Tallinn Mayor's Edgar Sarvisas relations with Kremlin. Edgar, uh, Edgar Sarvisas was called a Russian, publicly called a Russian agent uh, by Estonian Security Service in 2010. Uh, uh, all kind of investigations started, so uh, the resilience of Baltic states uh, uh, well increased after after this uh, uh, such kind of attack, a hybrid attack. Uh, in a contemporary situation of uh, such attack against NATO, uh, NATO members uh, would be uh, of too high risk uh, with no limited possibility. Uh, with uh, to limit possibility uh, achievements. Uh, the thing is that uh, Russia can't uh, predict what would be uh, the reaction of NATO to such kind of attack. Uh, they think, and uh, they have quite a good reason to think uh, this way, that Russia, uh, that West is in a such bad uh, moral uh, position and, and moral situation that uh, they will never, uh, the West will never defend uh, such small, as, as they said, uh, not an important uh, countries as Baltic states. But uh, the thing is, they can't predict what will be a, a reaction of, of, of NATO countries. That's why uh, to try this kind of scenario, which can bring them a real result they want to achieve, and uh, which still have a risk of uh, some kind of uh, 
counter uh, reaction from NATO alliance is a too big risk for Russia to take. What are Kremlin's goals in the Baltic states? Uh, I just uh, tried to find uh, four different quotations of different people uh, describing uh, uh, the possible attack against uh, Ukraine and against uh, Baltic countries, just because uh, of this comparison to uh, between Baltic countries and Ukraine. So even uh, talking about Ukraine, Alexander Dugin, uh, who was called one of the uh, well ideologists uh, of Putin, I don't think personally, I don't think it's true. It's, uh, he's an ideologist of only of one part of Russian elite, one group of, of Russian elite. He's not an ideologist of, of uh, Putin himself, but still uh, he's very well known, especially after the Ukraine, uh, after everything happened in Ukraine. And he's personally, he personally was behind the attack of uh, Ukraine. So the man who uh, was personally behind the attack of Ukraine says that uh, they're not thinking in terms of occupying the western part of Ukraine just because uh, they don't think that uh, this part of Ukraine can be assimilated. When we speak about the situation in Baltic states, uh, no one can think uh, that they could manage to assimilate uh, people uh, of the Baltic states when these people were not assimilated during all the Cold War. Uh, Nikolai Patrushev, he is uh, head of Security Council in uh, one of the closest uh, persons to, uh, to Putin himself. He is thinking and talking about uh, the situation in Crimea in terms that U.S. provoked Russia into taking over Crimea. And he's all, all the time he is speaking, he's speaking about uh, some kind of U.S. conspiracy uh, about Russia. So. They're, uh, when they're thinking, uh, they are thinking about any attack against uh, uh, Ukraine, Baltic states, or other, any other uh, country in the world, uh, they are thinking in terms of, uh, in broader terms, in terms of the war with uh, the United States, uh, uh, conflict with the United States. Mikhail Alexandrov as a payback for support of Turkey, NATO, NATO uh, could lose Baltic states. Again, it's in the context of NATO. And Rostislav Ivchenko, which I mentioned uh, already twice or, or, or three times today, in order to counter NATO, preventive occupation in the Baltic states is the vital interest of Russia. So why I've chosen these four quotations? Uh, this is just to show you that uh, when they are thinking about any next step, uh, would it be Ukraine, Baltic states, or even Syria, uh, they think in terms of much broader context. They are not interested in taking, let's say, the territories of these countries. They are thinking uh, in in terms of being in uh, being at war with the Western world and United States in particular. What are Kremlin goals in the Baltic states? So the first goal is very clear, 
uh, is to challenge Article, Article 5 and ultimately dissolve the alliance. I would use the word destroy because it's uh, the word they use themselves. We are always, uh, it's, it's quite popular now to, to, uh, to talk about uh, Russian attempts to undermine NATO, to undermine European Union, but the term they use is uh, to destroy. And terms ma uh, really matter, uh, so we should use uh, the, the, the terms they use themselves. So the first is to challenge Article 5 and ultimately destroy uh, NATO as a, a military alliance. The second goal is to make a corridor to Kaliningrad. So I should go back to the very beginning, uh, this uh, Sudeten Gap, uh, Svalky Gap, and uh, you can see in the, this map that they would like to make a corridor to Kaliningrad from Belarus. This is, this is ma a map from the Ishinkos article uh, I've mentioned already. So they would like this corridor to Kaliningrad. And the third is to get more access to the Baltic Sea. The thing is that uh, looking uh, into all the uh, military analysis and, 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 and uh, political analysis, they consider uh, Baltic Sea as a strategic one, uh, one thinking about uh, defending their western borders. So, uh, and after the Soviet, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, they lost the access to, uh, well, the most part of the access to the uh, Baltic Sea just because of uh, all three Baltic states became independent, and now they have the access to the Baltic Sea just in Leningrad and St. Peter. So they really want to get more access to the Baltic Sea, and this one, which shows, again, from the same uh, article of Ishinko, it shows they really want to get uh, another corridor to Riga, and this one is, is, is just here about Estonia. So these are three main goals Russia want to achieve in the Baltic states if they ever attack uh, these three Baltic states. The most important threat perception factors, uh, possibility of Russian conventional attack in the Baltic states. Uh, the first one is a general preparation for a big war in Russia itself. Uh, don't, don't take it from me. Uh, take it from uh, Russian TV channels, from their internal discussion. Uh, they are really preparing for a big war. It's not only about their news. Uh, every day they are talking about a threat to Russia, which NATO poses and United States poses. Uh, they are talking in terms that uh, NATO wants to uh, attack Russia and to take uh, their... Uh, natural uh, resources, oil, gas, and everything else. So uh, they are preparing for a big war, and it's really absolutely clear when you see uh, this domestic propaganda. We are talking all the time about uh, the uh, propaganda they bring to our countries, to the West, but when we uh, think about the propaganda, the domestic propaganda, you, you, cre you would create clearly see that uh, they are preparing uh, their own population for a big war. Uh, uh, 
the second thing is substantial increase in military budget under the circumstances of severe economical crisis. Even to, uh, today, even having in mind that the Russian economy is, is in a real bad shape, uh, the, in, in a situation of a severe crisis, uh, the uh, increase uh, of the military budget is quite substantial. If we will take uh, uh, official data, uh, it will be only 1.8 percent uh, uh, increase uh, of the military budget in a year of 2016. Uh, if we take official data, it's just uh, uh, 0.5 percent. But we should take uh, into account uh, not only these uh, official figures because uh, one third of Russian budget is hidden. Uh, it's not public. And uh, even Russian uh, analysts agree that this part of Russian budget uh, goes to military and security forces. So uh, having in mind all that, uh, the increase of uh, military budget in Russia, even in under these circumstances of severe economical crisis, is quite substantial even in a year of 2016. Now we have a situation when a country like Russia has uh, one-third of their uh, national budget devoted to, military, uh, to the military. So why, is, why to do so if the country is not preparing for a big war? Uh, uh, see, uh, very important thing. Uh, they just created, uh, uh, for, uh, they just formated the three new divisions, uh, military divisions, and these divisions were created uh, in the Western military district. So that makes us, uh, that should make us to think why they're doing that, why they're creating these new military divisions, and why they are creating these military divisions particularly in this Western military district uh, where uh, the potential attack, from where the potential attack against the Baltic states can come. Uh, let's take military exercises. I just, uh, again, I just uh, found you two uh, quotations by quite well-known uh, analysts in the world, uh, in the Western world, uh, not just uh, yeah. In order not to speak my, by myself, uh, I just want to, to, to understand that when we look, uh, and I know it personally from our military people who are analyzing all these military exercises, when we look at their military exercises, we can clearly see that uh, they are preparing for a big military conflict uh, with, uh, I would say, with need. <clears throat> the first factor, Russian aggressiveness, po uh, aggressive posture in the airspace. Uh, we talk a lot in the West about uh, this uh, air, airspace violations by Russia, which uh, became quite constant uh, since, at least since the war in Ukraine. And majority of incidents, again, have taken place over the Baltic Sea, not in, other, in any other place in the world 
They are quite active everywhere, but majority of the incidents have taken place over the Baltic Sea. Russia's overwhel uh, the fourth one, Russia's overwhelming military dominance in the region and Kremlin's awareness of Baltic states' vulnerabilities. Uh, people uh, well, from military background, pe people from NATO, uh, they <coughs> really keep awakened uh, at night by the fact that uh, Russian military dominance in the region is so overwhelming that NATO, right now, right now, NATO is not able to defend these countries. So, and Russia is very well aware about this kind of vulnerabilities of the Baltic states. And uh, there I can refer to the recent Rand Corporation study, which says that uh, Riga Tallinn or, or both can be uh, accessed by Russia in 30, uh, 36 to 60 hours after the start of the hostilities. So it's, 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 it's not, don't take it from me, take it from Rand Corporation, which is one of the, well, most known and, and, and well-respected uh, think tanks in, in, in U.S. and, and, and the world. So conclusions. Baltic states uh, are far less vulnerable and much more ready to Russian hybrid attack in comparison to conventional one. And probability of Russian conventional attack against Baltic states is much higher than the hybrid one. But I would also want uh, to make some important notes. I already said that Russian domestic political discussion about the possible new occupation of Baltic states has shifted from if to when and under what circumstances. It is really important because when uh, I consider myself a uh, uh, an expert on Russia. I'm uh, doing a research uh, on Russia for some 25 years, so I know for sure that if Russia is preparing something, the first thing they do, they start this domestic uh, public discussion about anything, starting from, let's say, Khodorkovsky case and, and everything else. They start this public discussion, uh, and the goal of such a discussion is to convince uh, the elites in Russia itself, including Putin, uh, to take this uh, uh, step or the other. Defense, uh, the second important note is that defense or retaking Baltic states after the Russian aggression starts would be much more costly military, politically, and financially than to deter Kremlin from such an aggression. Uh, it's, to add to this, I would say that it could be a situation, I, well, I can imagine a situation when it would be almost impossible to defend uh, or retake Baltic states after Russian starts an aggression. Uh, because uh, Thinking about the scenarios of possible uh, attack against the Baltic states, we should think not only about the Baltic states. Uh, it could be that the first uh, target would be not Baltic states themselves. The first target could be uh, 
Sweden. It's about uh, the Gotland and Holland Islands, which uh, has a strategic importance in this uh, area denial uh, concept uh, of the Baltic Sea. If they will take uh, Gotland and uh, Holland Islands, it would be almost impossible for NATO to uh, uh, counterattack uh, Russia from the Baltic Sea. They will have uh, overwhelming uh, superiority in the air and in the sea, uh, in the Baltic Sea. So the only the only uh, place from where uh, the counterattack could start would be Poland. And the third note is failure to defend Baltic states could mean the end of NATO. Uh, NATO is an alliance which is based on uh, mutual trust. NATO has no troops. We have. American troops, Lithuanian troops, Polish, Polish troops, and, and all the other troops. NATO as an alliance has no troops itself. No, NATO is based on mutual trust. If this mutual trust would be uh, ruined by uh, a case of not defending any country, it doesn't matter if it's Baltic states, Romania, or any other, or Turkey, uh, NATO will be dead. And uh, Russians are very well aware of that, and the uh, temptation to do that uh, is a really big one, just because uh, the ultimate goal of Russia is to uh, destroy NATO, as I already said, and I will speak about that uh, this evening, uh, tonight, uh, when I will speak about Russia. So um, that's about the Baltic states. Now about Poland. Uh, Poland is uh, the crucial uh, country for Baltic uh, for the defense of Baltic states. That's why our strategic alliance uh, with Poland is uh, of crucial importance as well. But uh, many of you, I'm sure many of you know that at least uh, the relations between Lithuania and Poland are not as good as they could be. Uh, not long ago, these relations uh, could have been called uh, cold peace uh, instead of strategic partnership. After the new government in Poland came to power just uh, last autumn, uh, then efforts uh, from both sides uh, started to uh, change the situation. Uh, not much have changed, but still uh, we are in a situation when we try to uh, open a new chapter in our relations. Uh, I don't know where it will end, but uh, personally I always advocate for a strategic alliance between Lithuania and Poland, between Baltic states and Poland. To my mind, we share uh, not only a common vision, not only a common uh, threat perception of Russia, we share a common interest with, with Poland. But uh, because of uh, our history, quite a long and complicated history uh, between Lithuania and Poland, we have many, many issues. We still have many, many issues to solve. And 
to restore a mutual trust. Uh, so that's why it's, it's this. Uh, the process is really complicated and hard to achieve. Several words about Poland itself, because especially, especially after the new government came to power in Poland, uh, the discussion in the West uh, has shifted to something could be called like Hungarization of Poland uh, or urbanization uh, by the name of uh, Hungary. Uh, the Prime Minister of, of, of Hungary, of Poland. Um, I'm not sure it's, it's, uh, if it's correct. Um, yes, we have some issues in Poland, uh, and I'm not a supporter of these actions uh, they've taken. Um, but the thing is, uh, there are very, very many differences between uh, Hungary and Poland, between Orban uh, regime and uh, the one in, in Poland. Uh, the first one is that uh, Pol Poland, under the current government, under the rule of uh, Kaczynski, uh, who is still behind the scenes, um, will never be friendly to Russia. They will always be Atlantist country, and that's very important, uh, which Hungary is not. Uh, they have many issues with uh, European Union, and uh, they can be called uh, Eurosceptic, but uh, they, they always will be Atlantist country, and they always emphasize uh, the relations with United States, the st uh, strength of NATO, uh, the importance of NATO, the importance of this uh, alliance between United States and, uh, and Europe. Uh, the second thing uh, to be remembered is that when we think and speak about Poland and the recent, uh, not very Well, no, the recent steps not in into uh, right direction they've taken. We should remember that it's not uh, much new about that. Let's take uh, the issue of uh, the minister uh, when minister of justice just became a general prosecutor. Uh, we think that it's a. Uh, kind of uh, strengthening of, of, of power in the hands of government and it's a kind of uh, ruining of balance of, of powers in, 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 in the democratic world. But somehow we uh, forget that, that that was the situation in Poland just uh, eight years ago. That was exactly the situation in Poland. So only eight years of, of uh, uh, Tusk government was the difference. So at that time, we were not uh, ringing uh, the bell that uh, the democracy is in danger. Uh, why that? Why we are ringing this bell this time? Uh, about the Constitutional Court. So it was uh, 
previous government who took these steps uh, before leaving the power in the Constitutional Court. Uh, what about the press? Uh, these attempts to uh, control the press in, in Poland uh, were present in the uh, years of the previous governments, not only the Tusk government, but, but all the previous governments. So, yes, these are really uh, dangerous and not welcoming steps uh, Poland has taken, the recent government of, of Poland has taken. But we should have in mind uh, and we should try at least try to be objective and not to be caught by some, um, I would say, cliches. Because we're thinking, uh, to my mind, uh, sometimes we're thinking in, in terms which could be cliches about, about uh, not only about Poland. And when we call Poland somehow similar to uh, Hungary or to, to, to the regime of, of Orban, to my mind, it's, it's not true. Uh, I'm not welcoming uh, all these uh, things which has happened in, in Poland recently, but still uh, the differences between these regimes and uh, the things to be uh, remembered to, to me uh, says uh, that uh, we are not right judging Poland. And uh, there I will stop and uh, will be more than happy to answer all your questions. Thank you very much for your thought-provoking lecture and, and assessment of the situation. That's fine with us. But we have the room for another half hour for, uh, for any questions or debate that you might have. And I will, I'll probably turn the questions over to you. Kristen, do you have your hand up or no? I'm going to. <laughs> Why don't I, 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 I'll call on the first question responded, and then um, after that you can take your own questions. Thank you. Thank you very much for that talk. Let's assume that, that you are correct. And let's assume that... Uh, uh, leadership of the European Union and NATO accepts your argument, what will then happen to Russian energy sales uh, to, uh, to Western Europe, oil, uh, gas, and even the nuclear fuel assemblies to places like the uh, Czech Republic? that history, but I'll let you do it, the European energy policy and so forth. Uh, so the question is, will that negatively affect Russian energy sales to Western Europe, and, and will that in turn do great damage to the Russian economy, which is already under sanctions uh, because of Donbass and, and Ukraine? Well, first of all, um, Answering this question, I should mention that uh, Russia is much more, much more, I would like to emphasize this, much more dependent on energy uh, on Europe than Europe is dependent on energy on Russia. So uh, it's only uh, one third of gas or oil, roughly speaking, uh, is dependent in, Euro in Europe is dependent on Russia. Russia is almost, I would say, something 80% or even 90% is, uh, 
is dependent on Europe. So they are, they are, not, they are not suicided. They, they can't retaliate uh, to any actions uh, of <coughs> strengthening the defense of Baltic states by uh, cutting energy supply to uh, Europe. Just because the simple thing, as you already mentioned, the economy is in a very bad shape. They are under sanctions. So if they will stop uh, energy supply to Europe, they will have no revenue to support themselves. So I don't see any... And uh, Russians uh, put... Well, again, it's, it's, it's about Putin's regime. It's not about Russia. So Putin's regime is very rational. Maybe it uh, might be it's rational in a way we don't understand such a rationality, but it's, it's really rational. They will not harm themselves by doing such things. We think that they harmed, let's say, we think that they harmed themselves by these counter-sanctions, but it's not true, because it's our thinking we, uh, they harmed, them, uh, harmed themselves by, by doing that. In their thinking, they are supporting their own economy. Uh, it's a very different different thing. They think that this uh, this kind of sanctions increases domestic production, and it's a kind of uh, tool to solve their internal economical problems. It's about the ruble itself. Uh, we think that devaluation of ruble is some something uh, very bad for us. They think in, in quite a different way. They're doing it intentionally. They are just by devaluating ruble, uh, they are paying their bills. Uh, and it's not only uh, it's no, not only their perception. Even uh, just remembering our own experience in the Baltic states when uh, crisis came uh, in 2008. The first thing we were uh, advised to do by International Monetary Fund was to devaluate our currency. So it's, it's a kind of, of uh, just trying to solve their own problems. It's, it's not about uh, just retaliating in, in a, some kind of foolish way to our sanctions. So it's, it's, it's the same about this uh, energy situation. I don't see any possibility they can uh, afford to retaliate this way. I've read frequently that Putin has a small circle of people around him. So if he should die tomorrow, what do you think would happen? <laughs> oh, I, I could talk hours and hours about that. Uh, my, <laughs> uh, my understanding of Russia is... is I would say slightly different uh, from the mainstream one. Um, I would say it's not about Putin. I would say it's about uh, the system. I would argue that we overestimate a role of Putin and underestimate the role of system itself. So my, uh, the short answer to your question would be that nothing will change. Nothing. Absolutely. Or I can imagine that the next Putin would be even uh, worse. Uh, to give you some names, uh, I would think that, uh, let's
let's say, Defense Minister Shoigu could be uh, the next leader of, 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 uh, of Russia. There are several others, uh, but uh, it depends on their internal power struggle and uh, their fights between each other. My understanding of Russia is it's not, not well, Putin's regime has little to do with a normal country. It's a kind of mafia, KGB mafia. Uh, and even in the Kremlin itself, uh, they have, I would say, something around 10 most influential clans. So, and they are fighting each other all the time. So when uh, somebody like Yakunin is uh, dismissed from this uh, post of, of railways, uh, it's no, nothing just uh, he lost the confidence of Putin. It's, uh, uh, well, mentioning this particular story, it was uh, two years ago when uh, it, it was publicly announced by uh, official sources uh, that Yakunin is already dismissed. And that time, uh, it was a plan of uh, people like Shuvalov and, and, and uh, others, so-called liberals. So uh, this, uh, what has happened to Yakunin is just the end of this old story. So uh, they are fighting each other all the time, uh, and, uh, but, and, and it's not about Putin. Putin himself, uh, I would argue that uh, Putin himself is a kind of accidental, accidental leader of uh, Russia. Uh, in a year of, uh, I can remind you that in a year of 1999, uh, uh, when everything, uh, well, when Putin started his journey to power, uh, there were two other candidates uh, to become uh, successors of, of Yeltsin. Uh, the first one was Evgeny Primakov, and the second one was uh, Mr. Sebastian. Both of them are from KGB. So uh, not much could have changed if uh, it was Primakov or Sebastian. And Putin was uh, lucky, I would say, to become this uh, a leader of Russia. But it was not Putin who created this uh, regime. I will uh, talk about it uh, this, uh, this evening, but I can tell you some words about that. Um, we think, we really think in terms that uh, Putin brought all these people from KGB, his friends, uh, to power in, 2000, uh, in the year of 2000. It's not true. Uh, there is a well-known uh, Russian researcher, Olga Krishtanovskaya, who uh, researches this uh, KGB things and, and, and Putin's regime for decades. Uh, so uh, he put uh, very interesting figures about, about the uh, KGB people coming to power in, in, in Russia. So um, at the end of the Soviet Union, uh, under the Gorbachev, it was 3% of people uh, from security services, not only KGB, it could be GIU, it could be um, police, uh, it could be military people, but, but people from this, they call them Siloviki. Uh, so uh, there were only 3% of these people in the highest positions uh, in power in, 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 in Soviet Union. In the early years of uh, President Yeltsin in 1993, 
there were already 30% of people of this background in power in Russia. At the late years of Yeltsin, in 1998, as far as I remember, there were already 50% of these people uh, with this background in, in power in Russia. So when you have a country like Russia, uh, with 50% of people with KGB or other security services in, uh, in power, you can say that uh, the country is under KGB control. And uh, the Putin's uh, just c coming to power in, in, in Russia is a result of this control of KGB of Russia. Not Putin brought these people to power. So the system is live and well. Absolutely. So you mentioned that um, in the event of a, a conventional war, retaking or defending the Baltics would be much more costly than deterrence. So in your mind, in the ideal scenario, what would deterrence now consist of? Um, as I said, uh, they are... Putin's regime is, is really rational. So uh, what they're thinking uh, about now, they're thinking about some kind of blitzkrieg. Uh, I mean, they need to take these Baltic countries, not maybe in 36 or 60 hours, as it was mentioned in the land preparation study, but at least in a week. Uh, if they can't achieve this goal, I wouldn't think they will start it. So... Uh, when, when I uh, started to write and uh, speak about this uh, threat of conventional attack against uh, Baltic states, uh, my perception was that we need at least a brigade in every country, NATO brigade. We have our own brigades, uh, but at least a brigade in every country, NATO brigade in every country, to defend ourselves from this kind of blitzkrieg. Now, when I have uh, read this uh, Rand Corporation's report, I found that I was absolutely correct according to them, because they say that we need, uh, to deter Russia, we need seven brigades in all three Baltic countries. So having in mind, we having uh, our own brigades, so it will be the same. Four brigades uh, of the Baltic states, three brigades of the NATO countries, and uh, it will be a real deterrent to, uh, to Russia, to, to Putin's regime, not to take any actions in this uh, part of the world, just because Blitzkrieg will be not possible in that case. Yes, please. As a follow-up to the deterrence, uh, if we are looking at um, your note three at the, at the bottom, do we not, can you speak to Russia's um, motives or involvement in Syria and how it is also creating uh, instability in Europe as a result of the Muslim uh, uh, refugees and how uh, yeah. their religious political system is intruding upon Europe as a distraction, if you will, to potential problems in the Baltic? Uh. I wouldn't see it as a distraction. It's a well-prepared uh, strategic move by Putin's regime. Uh, I would argue that uh, a war 
in Syria uh, started not in Syria itself. A war in Syria uh, started uh, when we were so happy about so-called positive uh, Russian role uh, in the negotiations uh, with Iran on this Iran nuclear uh, nuclear program. At that time, at least for me, it was very clear that Russia is preparing something in the Middle East. And, uh, well, uh, because I'm absolutely convinced that Russia will never, ever uh, help us in any strategic uh, game we are playing anywhere in, in the world. Uh, that's why at that time, for me, it was absolutely clear that they're preparing something in, in the Middle East. And now we see uh, they were preparing this war in, in Syria. So it's, uh, it's a bit different from a campaign in Ukraine, because uh, a campaign in Ukraine, I would argue, it was not well prepared. Uh, it was even not a state campaign. I would argue that, uh, at least in Donbass, it was just a campaign of uh, part of Russian elite. I mean, uh, Putin himself uh, was not very happy about uh, this campaign in Donbass. From the very beginning, uh, we can remember how he didn't recognize uh, the referendum in Donbass. And uh, I can bring you many, many uh, other arguments uh, showing that Putin personally is not uh, very happy about this campaign in, in, in Donbass. But as I said, Putin is not a Tsar of, of Russia. Putin is just, a, I would say, he is a, a kind of godfather of mafia. And he makes uh, the final decisions, but still he should look into the balance of power. And these people who started everything in, in Donbass, uh, they are very closely related to military industry complex. So, so it's a huge uh, power in Russia. And, and, and he, well, it was not uh, like Putin was uh, not sharing their goals in Donbass, but he was not sharing their, um, well, their steps in Donbass, I would say it this way. So about this refugee crisis, well, when you, when you see uh, that, and well, okay, I can refer to the NATO people who are openly speaking about that already. When, when you see that uh, Russia is indiscriminately bombing uh, civilians and, and civilian convoys in, in Syria, uh, you should think why they're doing that. Just, just to uh, make this uh, humanitarian crisis uh, even bigger and uh, the refugee crisis in Europe even bigger. But uh, I can go even, even further. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced. Still, I have no facts, and when I have no facts, I am not making any, any conclusions. But I am thinking in terms that uh, Russia could be behind this, uh, the even the start of refugee crisis. It's again, it's not like, uh, like Russia is manipulating all, the, all over the world. Um, the refugee crisis was a natural situation because of all the situation in the Middle East. So these refugees were present in Turkey and everywhere else. Refugee camps were present. But somehow it started that one day many, many people just decided to move to Europe. How has it started? The question is. So, so um, 
Having in mind all the long history of KGB during the Cold War, and I really uh, research these kind of things for many, many years, uh, I still think about the, some kind of active measures, so-called active measures, they could apply to start this refugee crisis in Europe, because it serves, it, well, it's absolutely clear that it serves their interests. Yes, please. Uh, following that question, basically, I wanted to touch the question of Turkey. It's uh, part of the, the Syrian strategy, kind of, but now we see that Erdogan is not angel and uh, he's actually supporting the op opposite part, the side. He's maybe one of the main supporters of ISIS. And there is this agreement also uh, between Turkey and the United States government on that. But my question is, you know, how Putin's strategy would reflect into Baltic countries or how we can vector this strategy in Turkey, with Turkey, into future policies in Baltic states, and uh, how we can forecast, or how can they behave from that standpoint? Um. My answer would be it's impossible to forecast uh, and to predict what, uh, uh, well, the next step. Because, uh, as I said at the very beginning, they are opportunistic power and they are taking the opportunities we give them. If they will uh, see an opportunity to do something, let's say, not even in Turkey, but in Arctic, in, and somewhere anywhere else they will take this opportunity it's not necessarily they will take the opportunity of baltic states it's not necessarily they will exploit uh, this opportunity they are already exploiting uh, the opportunity in turkey because i would argue that uh, the thing uh, with the this plane uh, in turkey was intentional from russian side they were trying to uh, provocate Turkey to uh, shoot down this military plane uh, to escalate the situation and to see how NATO would react. And they got the answer which is not very encouraging to us because uh, they got the answer that military structures of uh, NATO is still working. Because the first answer was uh, from NATO was that uh, Turkey is a member of NATO. Uh, we support uh, their well, right to defend their airspace. And NATO, as, as an alliance, is in a full support uh, of uh, the borders of NATO. That was the reply from, from, from NATO. But right after this, we got a message from Obama administration which said, well, the first thing we need to de-escalate, and maybe uh, it's not Russia whom to blame for that. Maybe, well, it was not said, but between the lines was, maybe it's not Russia. And then we got the message from Germany, which uh, the, uh, um, what the name is uh, yeah. No, 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 not, 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 not the medical, uh, foreign minister. Uh, 
no, 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 publicly said that, well, it's not about Russia, it's about Turkey. They are escalating the conflict. So we've got the political answer from NATO alliance that maybe we're not ready to defend our ally. And Turkey is our ally. So they got an answer if they, and they know that uh, Turkey is a strategic partner of, of, of NATO. And as I said earlier, they think about the Baltic states like a small and unimportant countries. So if they are not maybe or might be not ready to defend Turkey, why should they be ready to defend Baltic states? That was the answer for Russia they wanted to get. Also another question, maybe not really, it's more tactical. You mentioned that Lithuania doesn't have direct borders with Russia. But open, open, open border, open border. 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 It's not direct border, it's open border. But still, this enclave in Kaliningrad district is really strategic, strategically positive for Russia and negative for us, for Lithuania. Absolutely. And could you reflect more what is the situation? Definitely they are pulling a lot of weapons over there. It's militarized extremely over there. Do we have some common strategy with, let's say, Poland in regards of, of that? Well, I, 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 as I see it, uh, we have. Uh, we are coordinating our efforts in this uh, field. Uh, at the strategical level and at the military level, our uh, cooperation with Poland, uh, even during these years of uh, cold peace, as, as I described them, uh, all the time it was uh, really good. So at that level, it says everything is okay. Uh, we are cooperating. Uh, our threat perception is absolutely the same. Uh, Kaliningrad poses a threat to Poland as well. It's not only to Lithuania. So in that, uh, in that uh, case, uh, I don't see any problem. The problem is that we have a situation when uh, Baltic countries, not only Lithuania, can't defend themselves uh, right now. And NATO can't defend them, uh, them as well. So we need to do something about and be serious about this uh, situation when we can't defend ourselves. And Russian, Russians, Putin's regime can take this opportunity. It's not inevitable, but they can take this opportunity. Yes, please. Uh, um, somebody, you? Oh, my question was, um, looking back in history, Cold War and thereafter, peace dividend which never materialized, NATO moved from Central Europe to the Russian border. So in some ways it's understandable that they've become very paranoid. And my question is, rather than um, uh, saying it is all aggression as such, could it be a behavioral change based on paranoia and with some diplomatic or treaty assurances on both ways with observation posts in the Baltic states, as well as joining Russia, deflates the situation? Uh, to start with, about the treaties. 
we have uh, Budapest Memorandum. What has happened to the Budapest Memorandum? Do you think that Ukraine would be in the se such bad situation if they would uh, have uh, nuclear weapons right now? They got rid of their nuclear weapons because of us, because of us, not because of Russia, because of us. It was a pressure from the West to get rid of these nuclear weapons. They were told they will be protected uh, by United States, Britain, and, and, and other countries, which has never happened. And about Russia, let's see what they are talking even after violating this memorandum. They are publicly saying there is nothing in the Budapest Memorandum which says we can't attack Ukraine. So it's about the treaties and treating of these treaties of current Putin's regime. It's not the, one, uh, the only one example. I can mention many, many treaties. They are not, well, obeying to. But, uh, but it's the best example. So we can't do anything with this kind of regime. It's not about treaties. It's about defending ourselves. Yes, please. Uh, you mentioned in, in sort of your, your analysis that the, the Putin regime or the, the KGB system or is, is opportunistic, but it's also rational and it's not suicidal. It's sort of, there's, there's some parameters here. Um, and that if, but there are these sort of clear goals and objectives that they would have, uh, being you know, the, the dissolution of NATO and maybe occupation of Baltic states or whatever else. Um, given the sort of the, the severe economic pressures that they have now in sort of the short and medium term, and the sort of the, the medium and long term uh, demographic pressures that they have, do you think they see a window of opportunity? Is there a window of time in which they have to act before they no longer would be capable of acting? Or is there, a, you know, is there some kind of calculation in this type of thing? Well, if I was Putin in this situation, uh, I would do something uh, until Obama administration is still in power. Uh, well, I don't believe, well, if I would take into account the possibility that Trump will come to power, it might change the picture because I would think that uh, they, they could um, have even better situation with Trump administration, uh, but uh, because I really don't believe it's, it could happen. Maybe most of, uh, well, maybe not most, but many Americans don't share this, uh, my understanding, but uh, I really don't believe that Trump can, can be the next president of the United States. So uh, having in mind this, uh, I would say the window of opportunities until uh, Obama's administration is in power. Because the next president, if not Trump, uh, it doesn't matter who it will be, uh, will be much harder on, on Russia. And uh, we can, uh, I, I would predict that we will have uh, a, at least, a, well, not at least, we will have this a battalion of uh, NATO troops in each Baltic country. But uh, as I was speaking, we need a brigade in each Baltic state. So we, we will have this battalion 
after NATO's, uh, well, it will be decided in, in NATO summit. It's, it, it would be my prediction. But uh, still, uh, any, any other uh, president of the United States will be much harder on Russia. So they have this window of opportunity. Uh, yes, uh, economy is a real pressure. But um, at the same time, again, uh, we think about, uh, even about the Russian economy in our own Western terms. And to my mind, it's misleading. Um, I can uh, refer to our own example, uh, our own crisis in 2008 in Lithuania, Latvia. In Estonia, the situation was much better, but, but still in Lithuania, Latvia. Um, if I would say that many, many people uh, in Lithuania and Latvia experienced a salary cut in some 40%, what would you say in the West? You would say that all the people should revolt. Nothing like that has happened. And our resilience uh, to such kind of crisis is already less than in Russia, much less than in Russia. So uh, the best uh, explanation uh, which uh, was given to me by Russian uh, one one of the members of Russian opposition not, not long ago. Uh, he, he's a member of parliament. Uh, he's an opposition, but still a member of parliament, uh, Mr. Gutkov. So he was speaking about this kind of uh, economical pressure in Russia and, and how, it, how are the things in Russia now. So he said, you know, what, what's the main difference? Uh, my driver uh, used to buy... Uh, cheese uh, from France for one uh, euro. Now he's buying the same amount of the same cheese from the Caucasus, I mean Russian-made, for the same euro. That's the main difference. That's it. Nothing has changed. So uh, the macroeconomic figures are real, uh, really frightening. But again, our economy uh, in 2008 dropped more than that in Russia now. So in long-term perspective, in long-term perspective, it's really dangerous, and it could uh, bring down this regime, but in long perspective, not in a short one. Yes? Um, uh, I had the same question before, uh, before you asked, answered some of these questions. Um, and you talked about Putin being not the only figure in the government. I was going to ask about the military exercises. If um, they serve a purpose short of executing those exercises, they serve the purpose of that kind of stature, or they establish a stature, uh, is it possible that they would just continue to do those exercises without using them? And then the second part is, how long might that work except for the balance of that domestic will, as you said, that domestic pressure to um, increase the stature of Russia? Uh, about the military exercises, um, it's not um, only related to the uh, to the preparation to some other uh, well, to some further attacks uh, or further wars in the world. It's uh, uh, I would say even it's more about uh, their military reform. Uh, according to their plans, 
in two uh, in 2020 they should be prepared to wage a, uh, two and a half wars at the same time it's, it's written in their documents it's it's not something invented by me it's written in their documents so all these even snap exercises it's much more they have much more to do with this military reform than uh, with uh, some plans to uh, well to attack one or the other country Yes, of course, at the same time, they are modeling the situations for attack against Baltic states, attack against uh, Ukraine, maybe against some other countries, even attack against Syria. Uh, they are modeling these situations, but it's a kind of uh, a part of their military reform. So it's, it's about their military exercises. What was the second part of it? And then if, if they don't actually execute something, might there be that as you said, there's that domestic will, that domestic pressure that sort of escalates the situation. Uh, well, um, I would argue that uh, Russia, Putin's regime has no strategy. They have a vision. They have a clear vision what they want to achieve, but they, they don't have a strategy. Uh, it's because uh, they don't have this national consensus in the elites, what to do next. Uh, let's say uh, Evgeny Primakov, uh, who passed uh, away two months ago maybe, was, uh, and as I mentioned, he was one of the people who could have been a leader of Russia uh, instead of Putin. He was one of the most influential people in Russia. Uh, he was uh, the most influential advocate of the ending of uh, the war in Ukraine. He did everything uh, he could, including his own uh, relations uh, in 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 United States. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember uh, such a, a Boystow meeting, uh, which was a kind of... Uh, pre-planning of Minsk agreement. That was an idea of Primakov, and implementation was of Primakov. So, uh, yes, there are many people who disagree with, uh, with uh, this current campaign, but their vision, even of these people like, uh, we call them liberals in, in, in government, Shuvalov, uh, Chubais, uh, all the others, they have the same vision. They have only some, uh, they disagree in, on some tactical points. That's it. I see our discussion has been shifting away from Poland and Lithuania to Russia, which is a perfect segue into tonight at 7 to 9 p.m. at the Humanity Center in the Communications Building. Russia and the world, a view from Lithuania, will be, will be Mr. Lauranovich's next uh, talk here on campus. Please join me in thanking him for a very interesting discussion.